Welcome to the Birth Lounge Podcast, an empowering space for expecting and new parents to hear candid conversations with experts, support your mental health, and learn the tips and tricks that thousands of parents have used to craft their ideal birth. We will answer all of your questions, the scary ones and the weird ones, to help calm your fears and feel confident going into your birth. I'm going to help you redefine what birth and motherhood looks like and how to embrace your journey. I've intentionally crafted an amazing list of experts to help you navigate pregnancy, explore your birth options, and plan for postpartum so it can be a time of soaking in your tiny human. We're going to go there on all the hard topics so that you can dive into finding your confidence and freeing yourself from fears around childbirth. With almost 10 years of experience in family education and a master's degree in human development and family studies, I created this podcast as a way to share information so parents can make educated and informed decisions about their care during pregnancy and childbirth. This is a birth community driven by evidence-based information and research in hopes to help you explore your options, understand your rights, and know what choices you have along the way. I'm your host, Hee Hee. Now let's get to the good stuff. Welcome back to another episode of the Birth Lounge Podcast. You guys, I'm so excited for this week because postpartum is a time that is very daunting and it can feel very overwhelming and it can feel like a blur, but it can also be a time that you really enjoy. And we talk about that a lot on this show is that you can prepare for postpartum. You can't plan everything just like in birth because some of it is you know, unknown. Some of it is going to be based on your baby. So we're not going to know until your baby gets here. Some of are the, some are going to be things that we just couldn't predict. Um, like a retained placenta. We never know when that's going to happen. Um, feeding your baby is another thing that we can prepare for and we can have preferences about, but we will not really know how we're going to need to best feed your baby until your baby is here and postpartum is like that too. You can plan and prepare, um, but you should know your options when it comes to that postpartum time. And this is about everything, but in today's episode, we're talking specifically about those mood challenges a little bit deeper than just postpartum anxiety and postpartum depression. I want you to understand the range of emotions that you might feel and encounter in that postpartum space. And I also want you to understand what action steps you can take if you find yourself there. We're going to talk about non-pharmacological options and also medical options that you have. So medication that may help signs, symptoms, things that you're feeling in that postpartum space. We're also going to talk about who you can talk to in therapies that have been proven to work with the postpartum space. Also very exciting, we're going to talk about the new postpartum drug that just hit the market and learn about where we are in production and trials and when we can expect it to be available to the general population. You guys, I am so excited to sit down with Dr. William Leininger, 
He was a medical doctor, a fellow of the American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, a retired U.S. Navy man, and currently practices as a board-certified obstetrician and gynecologist at Naval Medical Center San Diego and is an assistant professor of gynecologic surgery and obstetrics at the Uniformed Services University. He currently serves as the treasurer for the Society of Academic Specialists in General Obstetrics and Gynecology and is an oral examiner for the American Board of Obstetrics and Gynecology. He has previously served as the gynecologic surgery and obstetrics specialty advisor to the Surgeon General of the Navy and as a residency program director for the gynecologic surgery and obstetrics. Dr. Leininger graduated from Williams College with a bachelor's in 1986 and then spent a year teaching high school math and science. He next attended the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and graduated in 1991 and subsequently completed his residency training in obstetrics and gynecology at Naval Medical Center San Diego in 1997. During his career in the Navy, he has served in humanitarian operations around the globe. He has also worked on numerous policy issues, patient safety strategies, and medical education improvements covering topics such as updates to the armed services abortion policy, developing care guidelines for transgendered service personnel, decreasing cesarean section rates, preventing unplanned pregnancies, delivering health care for pregnant and deployed service women, and promoting the core competency of professionalism. In recent years, he has focused on advocacy efforts for systemic improvements in women's health care. You guys, through this conversation, you are going to get such a good feel for the way that Dr. Leininger really prioritizes his patients' preferences and truly cares that they're educated about their experience, all the way from what's happening in their body to what their options are to what does the data say about each individual option and how that may play a role in their particular story. He is really an OBGYN that gets it. I know those are rare, but you also know that I try and seek them out and elevate them on this platform. So I am just so thrilled to have this conversation. I know at the end of it, you are going to feel so much less scared about postpartum and truly understand what are the possibilities of, you know, things that you may feel when it comes to that postpartum time, but also what are your options if and when one of those happens. So without further ado, Dr. Leininger, welcome to the show. Good morning, Hee Hee. How are you? I am doing well. I'm very, very excited to be talking to you today. Um, I originally met you at the A1 conference and I was so intrigued by your speech because it was a traditionally heavy topic that I think is very scary to people. It is very much on everyone's radar. Everybody thinks about postpartum mood complications when they are having a baby. But to actually kind of edge that conversation and have that conversation can feel really heavy. And I never felt heavy listening to you talk. I felt really jazzed up the whole time. I felt very empowered as to like, wow, there are a lot of options that people can take. And so I'm really excited to bring that conversation to our audience today. And I so appreciate the opportunity because in my own practice, this is something that comes up routinely and there can be such stigma about it, which makes it so overwhelming for patients. People don't know about their safe resources. Friends don't know what to do in these circumstances. 
And so I'm so enthusiastic about just helping patients find their healthy, safe, family-oriented route to their own health journey. And I, that's why I appreciate being on the show with you today. Yeah, absolutely. You can feel that in the way that you speak about patient experience and the way that you speak about the way that you care for them and the way that you provide um, their health care to them. You can feel that you really care to center your patient and um, in kind of what they want. Dr. Leininger, this is for informational purposes. Obviously, you are a physician, but you're not our physician. So are there any disclaimers that you need to share with our listeners before we get started? I appreciate that opportunity, Hehe. A couple things that I always have to say is one, this is medical information. This is not information designed for somebody to make their own individual healthcare decisions. They should they should use it so they can have a, an informed, knowledgeable con- conversation with their doctor, their nurse midwife, their nurse practitioner, their doula, who's ever taking care of them, so they know what to talk about. So please don't make any decisions for your own healthcare just based on what you hear today. The other thing I always have to say is that a federal employee, as a federal employee, I need to emphasize that I'm sharing my personal medical views at this point as a private physician and that I am not representing my hospital, the United States Navy, the Department of Defense, nor the United States government with anything that I'm talking about today. So before we dive into the nitty gritty of everything, um, tell us a little bit about how you came to know so much about perinatal and postpartum mood complications. A lot of this is, it's part of our formal education, certainly, but for me, for me in my own practice, you, over the years, you just learn that many things that patients experience, it's not the actual disease necessarily, it's their experience with the disease. And you could have a normal, uncomplicated birth, but if people weren't engaged, they weren't very friendly, there was a lot of inconvenience, there wasn't the focus on you and your baby that you were seeking, that can be disappointing and and really leave some unpleasant memories about that. And other patients I've taken care of who come in and they have complications, they need more medicines that they wanted, perhaps they need a cesarean section. But if they have a good understanding of that, if people cared about them, if they supported them as much as we could in the birth experience they were seeking, they actually come out with a much more positive attitude. And so thinking about this with the perinatal mood disorders that we're learning more and more about, that is going to cover every experience. And I talked to patients and I shared one of the stories about an author who went through this, who she acknowledged she was financially secure. She was well-educated. She had a safe household. She had supportive family. She really had the resources she needed to be a successful mother. And she had debilitating perinatal mood disorders. In her case, it was depression for four months before she got help. And she had so many negative thoughts about her. Why is this happening to me? What's wrong with me? Why am I not a better mother? And for somebody to carry that with themselves through parenthood and the rest of their lives, most people, oh, I get the infection, I get my antibiotics, I break a bone, I get a cast, I get on with my life. But those are the kinds of memories and experience that will literally leave a mark in their memories, that it, that's a, a tough scar to heal. And so by helping them get out in front of that and realize, oh, some people get infections, some people have bleeding, some people have high blood pressure, and you happen to have perinatal depression, postpartum depression, let's get you taken care of because we know what to do about that. And then we put it in context and we we help them understand 
here are some things that may have predisposed to it. Here are some things that we can do about it now. But despite all the signals that people get about how they should live their lives, they ought to live their lives, they're supposed to live their lives, magazine covers, celebrity TV shows, newspaper headlines, each person gets to grow and nurture and thrive with their family on their own journey. And how do we figure out what that journey looks like? And I have some patients who come in with their whole checklist and they've done all the reading and they know exactly what they want to do on a schedule. And other families come in and it's very much, this is life and it's unpredictable. And when the baby comes, it comes. And that's part of the joy and the surprise and the wonder of everything. And you can plan out every step at Disneyland if you're going there for the amusement park rides. But then you find out about that little booth that didn't get any advertising. And your four-year-old has the best time of the whole day with the one-on-one with the Disney character that was totally unplanned. And those are going to be pictures and memories for a lifetime, much more so than Space Mountain or whatever the ride is that you're looking for. So those are some of the things I try to keep in my mind for individualizing my patient's care to what they're looking for and what they're going to be happiest with. Gosh, I wish all doctors had that outlook. I really wish that all providers that especially in women's health came to the table with that approach and that philosophy and truly um, having not only the desire, I do believe a lot of providers have the desire to have that collaborative approach, but it's the skill set of really being able to center um, your patients. And correct me if I'm wrong, am I remembering it correctly that the author you had spoken about was also in the military and she had compared her military experience to postpartum depression? Yeah, she was actually, uh, Valerie Plain Wilson is her name. She has given presentations on radio stations. She's written a book about it. She shared her own experience, so there's no HIPAA violation here. The uh, And she was actually in the CIA and had described her own training in uh, survival, evasion, resistance, and escape school, which is a very rigorous school uh, for surviving in a hostile environment. And she did very well in that, succeeded in the CIA. And so here's a person who had really been tested and conditioned to survive and and excel in some of the most arduous environments you can imagine. And yet postpartum depression overtook her. And it it just shows that each person may have their own vulnerability. And at the other end of the spectrum, I've seen some patients come through who I was so worried about postpartum depression because... Maybe there was a family history of depression. Her life circumstances were so demanding and so challenging. She didn't have the support that she needed based on where she was in in her journey. And she did great. It was almost like motherhood was the experience that let her, her strengths come to the forefront. And she thrived so well there. So it can be so unpredictable how it's going to occur for any one person. And that's where I so appreciate the chance to sit down with my patients and hear their story. You know, and sometimes it's just they come in for that postpartum visit and I can give them a screening survey or I can ask them structured questions. But sometimes I come in, I sit down across from them. I take a breath and just look her in the eyes and say, how are you doing? And I let the pause hang there. And either it's going to be this excited recitation of how good the baby's doing and family visiting and pictures and so on. Or there's going to be a long pause and her tear, her eyes will well up with tears. And I just know, oh my gosh, she is barely hanging on right now. Yeah. And we need to get her taken care of. Yeah. 
Oh, that's so tough. Okay, so we've talked about a little bit of, or you had mentioned being predisposed to uh, maybe some things that make it more likely that someone would develop postpartum depression. Can you tell us about some of those things? Yeah, we, we usually group those into three different categories. And one of the categories would be a biologic susceptibility and we don't have a, a clear test for that, but you could think about it. When I was talking to the nurses at the conference, I used back pain as a different example. So you could imagine an individual who has scoliosis, an abnormal curvature of the back, or they have some other kind of medical condition that means their ligaments and joints and bones don't all mesh together the way they're supposed to. It's not going to take much to give them back pain. And so we know that for some of the mental health disorders, people can have a, a disposition to it. It's just what they're susceptible to, not their fault. They didn't ask for it. We're working on finding tests that we can do to help us predict that, to let us identify patients who might be more susceptible to it. And maybe they need a couple extra visits after delivery so we can keep them closer. So there's that, that susceptibility that we don't have great tests for that right now, but we're working on it. Then there's going to be the life stressors that somebody's had. So using that backbone analogy again, maybe you did a lot of uh, waitressing or construction or lifting and carrying, or you've never learned good ergonometric lifting posture, and you have just strained your back over and over again in your life, that's going to make you more susceptible to it. So too, there are tests that we can do. For example, there's the Adverse Childhood Experiences Survey. It's a 10 question survey that we give to patients. And for each additional positive answer on the survey, it makes it more and more likely they may have some mental health dysfunction at some point in their life. So was there violence in your home when you were growing up? Was there a death in the family when you were growing up? There are different kinds of questions like that that could show during the early parts of your life if there are these huge stressors and disruptions that might undermine your personal resilience. And then finally, there is the current experience, the current express stressors that patients live with. In some situations, these are called the social determinants of health, the factors about where you live, you work, where you worship, where you educate, where you play that influence your health. Uh, so for back pain, if you're a person who has to carry groceries up and down four flights of stairs every day, probably not so good for your back pain. If you work in the kind of job where there's a lot of lifting, bending, and carrying, I think about my nurses all the time with this, where it would be so nice to lift with our hips and knees and keep our backs upright, but in an emergency, you're just going to reach and do what you need to do. So too with those mental health challenges, does a family have financial challenges? Is the home life unsettled? Are they worried about eviction? Do they have other health problems going on? What are they gonna do about daycare when it's time to go back to work? You can imagine all these stressors accumulating and the metaphor I use for people is imagine it's like you're building a tower of blocks. And if you have time with each block to put it in place and get it organized and keep it nice and square and, and straight up and down, that tower is going to be a lot more stable. But if your finance block is askew because you just haven't been able to pay bills and you can't get your kids into daycare and you've got other health problems and your sleep is disturbed and you're constantly tired and your neighbors are mean, all those irregularly positioned blocks, that's a much less stable tower. And that's going to make it more likely that it's going to start to crumble and pieces are going to fall off as more stressors accumulate on it.
Yeah, I'm envisioning a uh, Jenga tower. And, you know, as you put pieces more and more on top, if you don't get them right there, eventually the tower will crash. So I imagine that everybody identified with something that you just said. So probably no one comes out unscathed and is like, I have zero in all three categories. You know, thinking about the whole population, how often are we actually seeing postpartum depression impact people and families? Yeah, so the the ballpark numbers are around 20% that you'll hear. You'll hear some higher, some lower. Percentages are a little bit tricky because it's not like you get 20% postpartum depression. It's think about one in five, one in five new parents, new, new people who have babies, mothers, will get postpartum depression, one out of five. Those other four out of five, maybe the postpartum blues, maybe they have a few days, but not meeting the whole diagnosis. Even with that though, there's gonna be a range where some people, they have it mildly, they they self-care at home, they actually don't need medical care and they come out of it. And other people who it's much worse, full on care. And, but it's important for each person to recognize it's that if you get it, it's not like you only get it 20%. It's not like everybody gets 20%. It's one out of five people get it. And four out of five people don't have it nearly as much is a better way to think about it. Uh, a good example I think about here is with car accidents. How often do we put our seatbelts on? Hopefully 100% of the time. Mm-hmm. How often have you ever taken a trip where you actually needed your seatbelt to work? much less than 1% of the time, hopefully. Uh, One out of 100 car drives, hopefully you haven't needed your seatbelt. But boy, that one time you needed it, you needed it 100% right away immediate. Uh, And so that can be a way to think about, often these things, you don't have them very much, but if you have them, you can have them overwhelmingly. Yeah, Okay, so let's talk about what do we do if we do experience this? What kind of solutions do we have in terms of postpartum depression? Well, before we do that, actually, let's back up. When we talk about postpartum depression in terms of solutions that we um, are about to go into, are we talking about just postpartum depression or are we going to see a little bit of overlap with things like postpartum anxiety, the baby blues? How should listeners approach this? It's such a good thought about what's it going to look like as it evolves for each person? And what we commonly see is the first few days afterwards in the hospital. And when you first get home, usually there's a lot of help there. You got the nurses in the hospital, you got the doctors, you got all the support people. And those first few days, often you have family and neighbors. Oh, you just had a baby. That's wonderful. Let's all gather around you to support. Uh, often the, the mood disorders, be it depression or anxiety, don't come out so much then. Baby blues are pretty typical most new moms get this. Uh, and that's often just easy tearfulness, feeling sad unexpectedly for a short period of time, but then it lifts. And I do talk to my moms about the easy tearfulness and often the baby cries and they'll cry. They see a Hallmark commercial on TV and they cry. The traffic light changes and they cry. And sometimes it's that unpredictable tearfulness. They aren't really sad. There isn't anything to cry about. It's just the emotions are welling up because they've been pregnant for nine months. And now they're not pregnant. Oh my gosh, they're, they can actually lie on their back safely and they don't have heartburn all the time. And, and all these different stressors have gone away. 
And I, I do see for some moms, they get so frustrated with the crying, it makes them cry more. And yeah. you're trying so hard not to cry. Uh, so for any of the partners who are listening to this, the the three advice, the three bits of advice Dr. Linear has for partners in this situation is, and I'm in this case, I, I do want to use inclusive language, but overwhelmingly my mothers are women. Um, but for the partners, give her a hug, have some Kleenex at the ready, and keep your mouth shut. Um, and so for the male partners out there, dads, there is nothing to fix. So give her a hug and let her talk. And if she just wants to have a good cry, let her have a good cry. And then if she says there's something to fix, like, I'm so tired of that trash can being full for the whole day, honey, you can read between the lines and know it's time to take out the trash. That would be something you could fix. So a little bit of levity, but let's get back to what we were talking about with the trajectory it goes on. The uh, So you got the postpart, the, the baby blues initially. And then is over the next two to three weeks, most patients transition out of the baby blues and we see where they're more going to settle out. Uh, and so that's where there may be a more depression symptoms where there's more that typical sadness and excessive fatigue, um, just not feeling good about themselves, feeling guilty that they aren't a good enough mother at this point in time, or anxiety can start to creep in where there's excessive worrying. They just can't let things go. Nothing's done just right catastrophization is another term that we use where you don't just worry about a little bad thing happening. You say, but if then this happens, then that happens, then that happens. And oh my gosh, the house is going to burn down. And you just can't keep your mind from going down those rabbit holes, so to speak. Most parents get those every once in a while for a day or two at a time. You're just overwhelmed. You haven't had a chance to get caught up on things, but then it gets better. But if I, I talk to my patients and I say, if over several days or a week or two, you find your trend is continuing to either get more and more depressed or more and more anxious, that's a good time to call and seek some help and help. We'll, we'll talk about the kind of help that's available. It's not like we automatically start you on medicines or admit you to the hospital and the, the admissions are actually incredibly uncommon. The, but this is a good point to let friends know what to work for, look for as well, too, because I see so many people that what can I do to help the new moms? So the things that new moms who their emotions are sometimes getting the better of them, overwhelmed, they have two things to decide on. Do I feed my baby? Do I change my baby? Do I feed my baby? Do I change my baby? And they can't make a decision. Mm-hmm. And, and this is the kind of person who could multitask and balance checkbook and drive the car and do business. Not that you should drive and do anything else at the same time, but could take phone calls, plan meetings, you know, run a play group all at the same time. And now she's paralyzed by these two, which should be simple decisions. That can be a sign of her mood disorders getting over overwhelming her, um, clearly not feeling good about herself. Uh, those are the kinds of things where friends, maybe it's time to to see if they can help with something. And so ways to help early is don't say, is there anything I can do to help? Because people are horrible about taking help. But instead, oh, you have a couple of other kids. Hey, Sue, we're taking the kids to the park for a few hours. Can we take your two older ones and just give you some personal time with your little newborn? (laughs) What a breath of fresh air just to have one other human being to be responsible for at that time or new moms are notorious for not getting enough sleep. 
no mom is going to ask the friend to come over and say, hey, could you watch my baby from 10 o'clock at night to four o'clock in the morning so I can actually get six hours of sleep? But what about the dear friend saying, hey, I have Saturday afternoon off. Can I come over and watch your baby from 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. and just let you get six hours of uninterrupted sleep? For most new moms, six hours of uninterrupted sleep whenever they can get it just such a blessing for them to catch their breath, to actually sleep and, and have a trusted person in the house watching the baby. Uh, so those are, don't wait to be asked to do things, offer to do those things that are a fairly low investment for a friend, but such a return on that investment for the family. Th those are things to think about. So those are some ideas with the postpartum blues to uh, the postpartum depression and anxiety uh, and what we see patients evolving through as they go along. Yeah, I love that you you kind of lay out that it is going to change in those first couple of weeks. So just because you're feeling a little sad immediately after birth, do hold space that your hormones are shifting drastically. You got a lot of stuff going on. Your body is is coming down from a pregnancy, but if you're choosing to nurse your baby, it's building up for breastfeeding. You've got a lot of postpartum stuff going on. You've got healing happening. So just hold space for all the changes that's going on in your body. All right. So can we talk about some of those solutions? Let's start at maybe some non-medicinal options that people have, because I think the topic of medication for postpartum depression can feel really, really big and daunting. Um, I also think there is still some stigma around it. So let's start at non-medicinal ways, and then we can transition our ways to um, how we can incorporate medication in our routine. Yeah, and I think for each each patient, each family taking this journey through the postpartum time, that's where we really want to find what's going to work for them and find out what's actually leading to these situations, to the postpartum depression, the postpartum anxiety. Because each person, what they bring to the postpartum time is going to be different. Uh, and so I could imagine a new mom who all she saw was her mother struggle with postpartum depression, and she's terrified of it. And, oh, my gosh, is that going to happen to me? And I'm gonna, am I going to bring up my daughter the way my mom brought up me? That will be such a weight to carry versus the, the new family where not too many stressors. Huh, what's going on? Maybe I just need some more sleep they may find other solutions. So some of that is just seeing what, what's going on here. What are my stressors? Notorious one for new moms is lack of sleep. And that with anything that we talk about in mental health improvement, better sleep is often foundational to, to taking care of that. And that's giving your time chance, your brain a chance to rest and heal and recuperate. Just like if you go out and exercise for a few hours, boy, exercise for a few hours. I know that is a ridiculous expectation for so many of us. If you get out and get some activity each day, then you may find you need a rest period till, till the next day. Well, our brains are the same way. And then what else is exhausting our brains? How many inputs do we get from, during the day? Every time you're, you get a, a text, ding, ooh, a little agitation. What's that? What do I have to pay attention to? Or the emails that come in or the phone calls or what we see on the news or the incessant flood of information mm. and all kinds of, of news that we're paying attention to. And I may be worried about what's happening with climate change or celebrity drama or elections or the economy or whatever, but what do I really have to worry about right now? So there's that constant ag agitation. Maybe we need to take ourselves away from that. Let's take stock of what's actually going on. 
What are our finances like? Do I have the crib made? Do we have safe housing for our family? Uh-oh, winter's coming. What am I going to do about cold cold weather clothing? How do I how do I put a diaper on a baby? I've never I've never put a diaper on a baby before. How do I do that? Do I do it the right way, wrong way? Am I going to hurt the baby? Is this going to scar the child for life? So let's see where those stressors are coming from. And sometimes talking to a friend can take care of it. Sometimes talking, just it, writing it down and saying, what am I worried about? And sometimes you do need a professional to help you sort through those things and not looking for medication at this point, but just a, a life coach, a doula, a postpartum coach, social worker, your doctor, the nurses, lots of people who have helped new parents through this before and no questions to ask. And how often have we been in a situation where we're busy, we're frantic, and somebody else comes along with a fresh set of eyes and says, oh, you didn't plug the toaster in. That's why you can't toast. <laughs> but that fresh set of eyes just to take you out of your frenzy can make such a difference. And so that's where if we're trying to figure out where those stressors are coming from and then what you can actually work on at a given time. You got a new baby. You may be worried about climate change, but you're not going to fix climate change this week. So let's, what can we do for your new baby and where does that really fit right now? And let's take those little victories each day, a little bit of confidence boosting. You know what? Today, I'm going to focus on getting the diaper on properly so I know how to do that well. The dishes that are up to my elbows on the kitchen counter, those are not going anywhere. I will get to those tomorrow or the next day. Or maybe that friend would invite herself yeah. to come over and wash my dishes for me. And boy, wouldn't that be a big help? Um, and you know, and for some people, that non-child care help, such an easier thing to do. Oh, you need somebody to pick up groceries. You need somebody to take the dog to the vet. That's what you're stressing on right now? I would love to take your dog to the vet because I am so uncomfortable with newborn children. That's where you find those ways to work non-medicinally to take your stress levels down or say, wow, I've really worked on all these life situational kinds of things, but I'm not getting any better. Mm. Yeah. It reminds me of when we teach our one-to-one -one clients how to do what we call postpartum delegation. And you need to delegate as much as you can. This obviously comes down to, um, you know, access and, and a lot of times economic status. Hearing you talk about housing and food and clothing reminds me that um, there are populations of people that are more at risk than others, depending on access. But for what you can delegate, oh my goodness, it will make postpartum so much easier. Um, and as you get your footing, being a new parent, or even if this is your third or fourth baby, as you get your footing being a parent of three or four children, you can rein those back in and take back over the laundry that you decide to, you know, send out or cancel the food subscription box that you did for the first few months postpartum. You can slowly take back over those responsibilities, but to delegate out the things that you can, it is, um, it's really, really helpful. Um, okay, so can we talk about maybe therapy? I think this is something that a lot of people are interested in. A lot of people know about it. I would say probably, you know, almost everybody knows about therapy. I think there's still some skepticism and there's definitely stigma around it. Anytime mental health gets brought into the conversation, there's stigma. So 
What do we need to know about therapy? Is it actually helpful? What is the success rate? Are there different type of therapies that are more successful than others? What should we be thinking about if we're going to seek out mental health counseling in terms of postpartum mood complications? Right. And in talking about therapy or medicines or other medical interventions, the two tests that I will I will put something through for a patient to see if it's right for the patient is, is it going to work for her and will she use it? Because mm. if it's not going to work, let's not pursue it. Or if she's not going to use it, why prescribe it? Uh, and so those are the kinds of things to find out where the patient's at. Um, so you're talking about therapy and people think about, you know, the, the classic cartoon vision is lying on the couch with the psychotherapist taking notes and so yeah. on. So many different ways to do that. And th this isn't where we're getting into repressed childhood memories or something like that. Much of this is just helping somebody give you some perspective on what to prioritize. And we can put so much pressure on ourselves and have these expectations. And I, I talk to, you know, I, in talking to my patients, I, I see that they get the positive pregnancy test and they see that first ultrasound. They have a human being's life planned out. This is what we're going to the bringing home from the hospital outfit. And this is what the first day of kindergarten is going to look like and high school graduation and mom's dance at the wedding, which is 27 years away from now. <laughs> you know, and, and dad's probably thinking, and my daughter are 35 years away from now. The and so it, parents have these expectations that they create for themselves, which is one of the joys of parenthood is imagining what it might be and what it, how it's going to turn out, what this crazy journey is going to be like. But we all know you get to the amusement park and the whole thing can melt down in the first five minutes. The ride is closed. The kid's upset, um, whatever these things, and you just have to adjust to it. And so that's where the, the therapists are trained to help people find that perspective and you talked about, I think that you use grace and space in talking about giving those to ourselves early on. And I talked to patients who say, I have never been unable to keep my house clean. And now I can barely keep the dust out of the corners. You got a kid, there's a lot more going on. Yeah. And so that's where giving them that space and really recognizing, you know, the dust in the corners is not going to hurt anything. Let's remember to turn off the, to the, the the stove. Turning the gas off on the stove, that is an important thing to remember. Yes, we got to keep those burners off. Little tumbleweed dust balls, not so important right away. And so that, that, I get that is a very simple example, but then the therapist can help you talk about things and professionally trained to recognize eh, what are these stressors that we need to ask about? What are your own vulnerabilities? How do you respond to stress? What are your life coping strategies? And then start putting together this palette of approaches that you can use. And so maybe you're the very uh, type A personality that likes everything organized, but it's also a big stress for you. Okay, well, let's take some things out of your stress basket that you're worried about getting organized so it's easier to put those things together. Or maybe you've been a much more carefree, less planful person in your life, but you keep running out of diapers and baby food. Mm. Or, or something like that. Okay, maybe we need to add a little more organization to your life. And you, you can't spend so much time just enjoying being a mom with your baby. Wonderful part of it. But the baby needs life support as well, too. So let's get that organized. Or are there are there mental barriers getting in your way? You just can't imagine doing that because that's how you saw your parents do it and you hated it. So of course, you're not going to do it. Those are the things that a therapist can help you with. And so, and so for some people, one-on-one -on -one works best. 
group therapy where you're, especially with a bunch of other new moms at the same place, sharing the same experiences, so validating to sit there and say, I am not the only one hiding in my house with the blind shut, barely keeping my child alive from one day to the next. You hear about other moms going through it and then maybe find a little team, a little support group, somebody else you can rely on. Maybe that's how you get your hench people and your delegators and your support team together. And all of a sudden you say, hey, you know what, Mary, I'll watch the kids if you go pick up a pizza. And I recognize pizza is not a perfect food, but (laughs) I'm going to give myself some grace today. A couple pieces of pizza will not shorten my lifespan because I just do not have the time to actually cook something. So, you know, what, you know, choose your local pizza shop with a $5 special, bring it over and one dinner for the day is done. So one person takes a drive, one patient, one person keeps an eye on the kids and you've solved a problem that way. Uh, there, with some of the therapy, there may be exercises that you do. And one thing I've heard for the, for my patients who catastrophize their therapist will give them a 30 minute catastrophization time during the day. They are allowed to let their minds go wherever they want to go during that 30 minutes, just let it all out. And the rest of the day, you're just putting it back in the worry box until your next 30 minute release time. And so you get to negotiate with yourself and say, okay, I'm going to get to worry about that in a little bit, but for right now, I just got to get down the grocery store aisle, or I've got to get the bottles cleaned or whatever the priorities are at that point. So there can be the individual conversations, there can be the group therapy, and then there's, there are examples of exercises or practice or retraining that we can do. And, and some of this comes back to with the back pain example, especially the retraining exercises learning how to lift properly, learning how to strengthen the muscles, learning things not to do that you know is just going to hurt your back. And you can recognize, uh-oh, if I I just, I cannot listen to that person speak anymore because they are just nails on a chalkboard. And then it takes me five hours to calm down. I'm going to turn off that channel or I'm not going to open that Twitter thread or whatever your provo- provocation is. And maybe something you need to engage with at some point, but taking those those adverse stimuli, to use a medical term, those things that are so aggravating or upsetting for you, don't get exposed to them for a while Mm -hmm. and and choose things that are more in your comfort zone. Yeah. I love that you talk about that it can be temporary because I think a lot of family members can be some of those provocation spots for a lot of us, meaning maybe your mother-in-law or your own mother or your sister-in-law or whoever it may be in your life. Um, You can take temporary space from these people and then slowly invite them back into your life incrementally in a structured way that you feel most comfortable with as you get your footing um, as a new parent. I just feel like setting up realistic boundaries is so key. So I love how you talk about, is it going to work? Because duh, that's the goal. But also, are we going to have that follow through? Because, you know, a prescription to something or directions to do something without the follow through doesn't do us any good. Um, And then the final thing that came to mind when you're speaking is you talked about different therapies. In Boston, I don't know if this is kind of widespread, but one of my very good friends is a counselor in she does walk therapy, you guys, where you literally go and walk around the city, a park, a reservoir, and do your therapy outside. And it is just so therapeutic. I 
I've never done walk therapy, but it is so therapeutic for me to go and walk with my friends and just hang out with my friends. I can only imagine how amazing it would be to do that with your therapist. So if you're thinking, you know, ah, therapy is not for me because I am thinking about that traditional like laying back on a couch with my therapist analyzing every word. It doesn't have to be like that. It can be very casual. You can have a really nice, gentle relationship with um, with your therapist. It doesn't have to be, I think, what we've all kind of been conditioned to think about as mental health therapy. And I would love to step in on that as well, too. And little historical perspective, actually in ancient Greece, Walk therapy was one of the original mental health therapies. There were cultured gardens with pathways. And the idea was that the people would walk through those. And that was literally part of the therapy that they had. Other things that go along with that is there is something about walking or some kind of activity that gets you out of your own mind a little bit. And at least you're doing something and it helps you keep from going to dark places that perhaps you want to avoid wherever you can get to getting out into nature or just something that's more relaxing, the space, the sunshine, the, the, the fresh air and recognizing that there are people in situations where they don't have access to those kinds of spaces that are safe or climate related. But if you can find those, that's wonderful. The physical activity, the walking around and getting sunshine I think there are other benefits to that. There, there's something called seasonal affective disorder, where in the darkness of the, of the winter or the excessive light of the summer, it throws off their circadian rhythms, it throws off their mood, it throws us off their sleep patterns. So for some people, getting regular sunshine each day can help them regulate their sleep. Getting out of the house, just making yourself do something, good job. You got out of the house with your little baby and you went for a walk, yeah. you, you know, check that on the list. And that comes back to me talking about activity versus exercise. You got months and years to get back in shape. Let's just go walk around a little bit and loosen up the joints and move around. And what you were talking about, can you imagine walking with your therapist? Well, with online therapy these days, you absolutely can. And I've got to imagine that's happening. And so you're just walking, holding your phone out here, talking while you're going, or you just, maybe you don't even do it face-to-face. You just have your earbuds in with a microphone and you're talking and sharing thoughts and going from there. Such a less stressful way to do it. And I will say the pandemic had all kinds of challenges, but the mental health access for my patients has been amazing because I think They've got to get the kid in the car, get across the, the city, get find parking, find the location in the hospital, get to the waiting room, check in, fill out the forms to come sit in the office. I finally come in to see them. They have me for 12 to 15 minutes or however long we get. And then they unwind that going in reverse. And I, I, I have some moms that it's T-shirt and sweats and flip-flops and a scrunchie. And that's all the self-care that I get from them. Great. I am so glad you are here today. It is not about your grooming. It's about the the conversation. But that was, I know that was still so much work. Now they're sitting at home on the kitchen counter. They got like their little phone up. They can be feeding the baby. They don't have to go anywhere and they can still get themselves taken care of with so much less effort. I was I was always on the train of yes this sucks and I also wish it had not happened but there were good things that came from it. I think maternal health skyrocketed in terms of being the forefront of a lot of conversations due to COVID and for that I'm very grateful. I did not enjoy the pandemic like anyone but um Mm-mm. you know 
good things did come from it. Okay. So let's talk about if we do all these things, we went to therapy, we had our friends come and and support us. We have a supportive partner at home. We delegated those things and we're still not feeling better. Two questions. When do we know it's time to move to medicinal kind of medication route? And what would those include? Always a tough decision to decide when to start medicines in this case. And I wish it weren't because if you had a urinary tract infection, of course, you're going to start yeah. antibiotics. If you've got a sinus infection, you want decongestants. For the mental health therapy, again, because of the stigma and the history and so many misunderstandings about that, it's, it's difficult. Once again, it comes back to what is going to work for you and what will you use? And I have some patients I work with who they will do everything short of medicines and will make any effort to try to avoid starting them. And they have other patients where just where they are in their life, they don't have time to go to therapy all the time or the exercises, the mental health exercises that we talk about, maybe they don't work for them. They just want to get started on something and they want medicines right now. So that's very much an individualized discussion for each patient to have with her, her provider, whether it's a nurse midwife, a doctor, uh, the social worker she might be seeing, whoever is helping her with her mental health uh, management. The, and then for the, the medicines to start, there's, there's one, two branches I want to get here. We're going to get into some of the specific mental health medicines, but concurrent with this, make sure the rest of your health is being taken care of. So for example, I have my patients who have thyroid dysfunction of some kind, their thyroid is too high or their thyroid function is too low. Low thyroid can make you feel depressed. Overactive thyroid can make you feel anxious. So if you have a history of thyroid problems, let's double check on that. If you had bleeding during the delivery and you ended up really anemic afterwards, well, maybe that's one more of those Jenga blocks that's askew for you and you need to get your iron levels up at the same time. So it's not like you, you do this one step at a time. You can do several things all at the same time to be moving your health forward. So that would be important in discussions with, with whoever's helping you for, for your mental health concerns that you make sure your whole health history comes out. Uh, so now moving on to the, the medicines themselves, the I'm gonna start with the medicines that we've been using for a long time. And then we're going to switch over to the medicines that have just recently been approved for postpartum mental health conditions. For many years, we haven't had medicines specifically approved by the Food and Drug Administration for postpartum depression, postpartum anxiety. And so we've been using other medicines from depression and anxiety treatment. And fortunately, some of those we've been using for decades. So we have good information that for many patients, they can be effective and they can be safe. And just because you start medicine doesn't mean you're going to be on it for the rest of your life. That's a, that's a misconception for many people. Often that medicine is one of the Jenga blocks we're going to stabilize. So you have the time and the space to stabilize some other Jenga blocks. And once the rest of your Jenga tower is stabilized, then you can safely take out that other block that you don't want to have in there anymore. And the rest of the tower will remain standing. So that can be that transition tool that you think about. The one common category that we use are called, I'll give you the whole medical term, and then I'll give you some examples. They're called the selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors, SSRI. 
they were originally discovered as antidepressants, like Prozac was the original one. They work by helping your brain nerves keep their chemical levels for communication a little higher for a little longer, so those connections work better for you. And you can imagine with all the stimulation that we're constantly getting, your nerve endings are firing off a lot more than maybe they were 100 years ago when most of us worked on the farm, so to speak. And so those nerve endings can get a little tired out. So this medicine helps keep the the nerve trans the neurotransmitters, the chemicals that go between the nerves, in place a little longer, and that can be stabilizing for you. And so they were originally designed as antidepressants, anti-anxiety medicines. But maybe a better way to think about them is as mood stabilizing medicines, meaning you don't have to work so hard to get yourself up from being depressed or you don't have to work so hard to get yourself to calm down, where it might be that, oh, you're exhausted and you just can't face two more tasks around the house. Okay, I can take a deep breath, I can get through two more tasks versus before you started the medicine, those two tasks, you would have been a, a hot mess of tears lying on the couch with your tissues and your box of chocolates. Um, and I say that compassionately and sympathetically and very understandingly. Um, so now you have a chance to catch your breath. The, the ones that we are, the first one many of us use is called sertraline or Zoloft one pill a day. Most of the time, these medicines take about four to six weeks to really work. And I want to come back to that delay in effectiveness, but they gradually start to work better. So it gets less and less hard to keep your mood more where you want it. So you aren't feeling sad all the time. So you aren't so irritable. Um, I had a patient once say to me, oh, doc, I am so irritable. My husband is blinking too loud. Um, and you saw when, when I, I mentioned that at A1, there were a lot of knowing chuckles in the audience, <laughs> yeah. as a matter of fact. So that, that really resonated with people. Uh, so that means the, the blinking won't be so loud for you from the people sitting next to you. Uh, you start those, you, you take a pill a day. Usually we recommend at least three to six months for some, some new patients, six months to a year is better. But think about it once again is this Jenga stabilizing block. If you need six months or a year to get the rest of your life organized, getting back to work, getting daycare in place, making a, you know, weaning off of breastfeeding, you've got a big move coming up. You're, whatever's happening in your household, that's just going to be one more Jenga block. Let's keep the tower stable during that big transition that's going on and then talk about adjusting where the Jenga blocks are from there. So sertraline is one of the medicines. These SSRIs is the big category that we commonly use. There are other categories, and I want to emphasize each person listening to this who might be seeking mental health care should talk about his or her own situations with a professional therapist. This is really for information. This is not intended as medical advice for any one individual. Uh, but that's where you can find out what you need. Um, because sometimes I have patients come in who, when they were teenagers, they were on one of these medicines and they were great. They grew up, the stressors went away, they got on with their lives, and now they're pregnant. And they had totally forgotten about that medicine. But I say, well, have you been on this any of these medicines before? And then they remember, oh yeah, you know what? I was taking this medicine during my teen years. Did it work for you? Yeah. Let's try it again and go from there. Um, and that, that's a good example of how patients can sometimes benefit from that external perspective to help them discover things they had forgotten or they had been unaware of. And I, I have patients all the time who say, doc, how could I have forgotten I was taking that medicine and that it worked for me? 
but you're so caught up in your anxiety or your depression, you do lose that perspective. And that's where the therapists and the doctors and the doulas and everybody else who's looking to help with our healthy families, healthy mothers, healthy babies, we can all work together to make it better that way. Part of that individualization, though, is making sure there isn't something else going on. And something that over the past few years has really come up with is for our postpartum depression patients, before we start treating them with medicines, screening them for bipolar disorder, which sometimes can initially show up as looking like depression, but then the, the antidepressant medicines that we might use could unmask some of the anxiety or the mania, the overactive frenzy the mind can get into. And so that's where working with a professional before you start medications can be so helpful to make sure we aren't actually going to make your situation worse. Again, coming back to the importance of an individualized discussion and screening for each person. Uh, and it may be that there are other mental health medicines out there that we could fine tune for one person's situation. Because I'm not trying to individualize this to one person, I really just want to let people know that there are resources out there, there are options that are available. And I also have patients who come in and we mention, well, this medicine sertraline, the brand name is Zoloft, is one we commonly start with. And I've had patients say, you know, doc, I was on that 10 years ago. It didn't work for me. I didn't like the side effects. Could we try something else? Yes, we can. We have that nice individualized discussion and we say, well, let's try a different medicine or let's try an entirely different category or let's go to a different pathway to helping you feel well. Yeah. Okay. I have two questions from what you just said. My first question is if we do find that someone has undiagnosed bipolar, are we looking at then a lifelong diagnosis of bipolar and it, it kind of stays around or are we looking at a temporary, maybe postpartum bipolar diagnosis? Or is that not how that works that once you have it, you have it? I'll be right up front. I am not an expert on bipolar. So yeah, if okay. I were to find a patient with bipolar disorder, I would immediately consult my psychiatric colleagues yeah. to get the specialized care. Because if for, if for many years with bipolar disorder, there was really only one treatment and it was very cookie cutter. There, like so many things, we're finding it's more nuanced and it's more individualized. And can they manage their bipolar on their own? There are plenty of people with depression who, oh, this is something I'm susceptible to. and so this is what I got to pay attention to. I'm susceptible to back pain. I better do my stretches and my exercises each day to keep my back strong. I'm susceptible to impression, depression or anxiety. I need to get my sleep. I need to limit the stressors that are coming in my life. I need to practice my self-care, my medication, my, my meditation, my exercise, whatever works for them. I suspect bipolar is on the same uh, same spectrum of intensity for any one individual. So that's where if we think there is bipolar disorder involved, that's where I would want to get a professional who has expertise in that particular diagnosis so that we can help make that patient feel better. So that yeah. individual isn't having horrible lows and then rebounding to out of control highs at the same time, low and high activity, not talking about a response to a high drug use uh, euphoria. Yeah. So ideally it's that collaborative care between mental health support and also your your provider who is is with you throughout your birth. Okay, my second um question was you said you wanted to circle back to that delayed onset of effectiveness. Let's talk about that. 
Right. So usually we talk about four to six weeks for these medicines to typically effectively start improving a person's mood. Some patients, it happens much more quickly, but I, I don't want to create that expectation. For most patients, it does take weeks. And it's not the sort of thing where you wake up one morning and the light bulb has gone on and it's bluebirds and sunshine. And it's like some kind of Hollywood movie set with all the, the production value going on there. Most patients tell me, I, I just started realizing I wasn't as tired being myself at the end of the day. I didn't feel like I was fighting myself so much. And all of a sudden you get time when you're going out for errands and all you want to do is get three errands done. And then you find out, you know what? I'm okay to do a couple more things. It's not just struggling, hanging on by my fingernails to get to the end of my list. I'm actually okay to do this one extra thing. And that wasn't happening before. Uh, and so there can be that gradual evolution of a relief of symptoms. That delay is important as well, too, because if you do feel like your moods are each week, they've gotten a little bit worse or your anxiety is getting a little worse from week to week, don't wait until you're to that brittle edge of desperation where you just can't take it anymore. Because just as you've gotten worse and worse, whatever worse looks like for you, the medicines are going to take time to get you back from that. And so I usually tell my patients when we have the first conversation, they say, yeah, let's see how it goes. I give them that one to two week window to say, you know, every Monday or every Saturday, assess yourself and just see how things are going. And if you say, you know what, it's okay this week. Great. Let's take it a week at a time. If you find a couple weeks in a row that it's just not getting easier or it's actually getting worse, whatever you're doing may not be working well enough. And let's consider medicine sooner so you don't have that much longer time for the medicine to help make you feel better. Yeah. Once someone's on these medicines, can we mess with the dosage? Is it something that we can, you know, increase or decrease based on someone's symptoms? I prefer not to describe my medication adjustments as messing with the doses, oh. <laughs> but, but we will in a more methodical fashion evaluate that. Uh, and so often we, we usually start at the lowest effective dose that we know about. And in four to six weeks, we reevaluate. And some patients come back and say, oh my gosh, that's all I needed, doc. Why? And, and often they're coming back and saying, doc, why didn't you put me on this sooner? I feel so much better now. Uh, the and, and so for many patients, the medication, when they get to that point, is a wonderful lifeline for them. Or some patients tell me, you know, it, it's okay, but I am still working pretty hard to get through the day. Great. Let's adjust the dose and go up from there. Or we find, ugh, this medicine just doesn't seem to be working for you. Let's try something else. Or somebody's having some side effects from the medicine. And there are three three different kinds of side effects I have patients look at. And one, there's just the getting used to a new medicine sort of a thing. So sometimes you feel a little bit off, maybe an upset stomach. Um, you just don't feel like yourself. And over a few days, that tends to go away. There are some side effects from these medicines that are actually pretty easy to adjust to. So some people feel like, you know what, doc, this medicine just makes me so drowsy. Mm. Great. Let's take it in the afternoon and help you get some good sleep. Or they tell me, doc, I take this medicine and I'm wide awake. Let's take it first thing in the morning and make the most of it during the day. And so there's, those are the kinds of side effects you may be able to adjust to. Or if it makes you a little queasy when you take it, take it with food. So those are some simple, simple things to adjust to. And then some medicines have side effects that if they're there, there isn't much we can do to adjust to them. With the SSRI medicines, the, this group that I've been talking about right now, one of the well-known ones is for about a third of patients who start them, 
they find some kind of sexual dysfunction take place. And that may be they just aren't as interested in sex anymore. It is so much harder for them to get aroused or they have a lot of difficulty having an orgasm. And this is true for men and women. And so I always have this conversation. I just, I would feel so bad for a patient if she didn't know that this was something that might be happening to her. And she thinks something else is wrong with her when actually it's the the medicine that's interfering with her, her sexual uh, function. I will also say that when I bring up this up with men and my patients, they just look at me over their glasses and says, really? Sexual dysfunction? I need sexual function right now before I can have dysfunction because they're sleep deprived and they got a new baby and she's exhausted and she has so many other things going on that sex is absolutely a category C priority in her life. Um, and so sometimes we can be a little bit lighthearted about it, but these are the kinds of, of, you know, what are the side effects? What should I look out for doc? That if who's ever prescribing this hasn't discussed that with you, please ask those questions. Um, and he, he and I, we have a, a resource page we'll make available to our, our listeners afterwards, and that'll have some good places to go for more information too. It will. Okay. Are there any other side effects that we see that may just be less common? The one that we worry about, it's hard to know if it's a side effect of the medicine or it's the medicine doing something, is we do find that for some people starting these medicines, especially if they've been severely depressed, is thoughts of suicide, hurting themselves, hurting others, which would be homicide, but those very disturbing thoughts that can happen. And it's a little hard for us to figure out, is it something with the medicine or is it actually that the brains are getting more energized again? They're actually coming out. It's the when you're so depressed, you don't have anything, you don't have any energy to do anything. And so you can't even think of taking the initiative to do something harmful. Now you start getting that energy back, but you're still feeling bad about yourself. You're still feeling guilty. Patients who feel like my husband and my child would be better off without me. I ought to just drive a car into the bridge abutment, which are things I've actually had patients say to me. Um, the, uh, then they start getting enough energy to do something, but they haven't gotten that perspective back for themselves. They aren't able to do the self-moderating for themselves. And, and that would be the time when they start having those very serious side effects. Go to the emergency room, call 911. And in our resources page, we also have 24-hour-a-day 1-800 numbers. There's a great one. The very top one on the list is the maternal mental health uh, line actually has translators in 60 languages that you can go to. And the the number is right there. I won't ask people to write it down, much easier to see it. Uh, but then you just keep that handy. I would say for anybody listening to this podcast, keep it handy because you may not know when you're talking to somebody and that could be that lifeline. And I, with our multinational uh, country that we have, I talk to many patients. I, I have patients who speak Spanish and speak French and speak Thai and Filipino and Japanese, um, West African countries, uh, nationals in my practice. They need somebody they can talk to in a language they're comfortable with. And so that's where some of these resources are invaluable just to all for all of us to know about and have it the ready for our patients. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. For, for you or, or anyone. Okay. And what about GI upset? I know sometimes people can take these medications and report some upset stomach. Is there anything we can do about that? Is it worth changing medications? My, my first thought would be one, try taking it with food or something mm. to help settle your stomach. Make sure you're not taking it with other medicines that can upset your stomach. So notoriously 
some of the pain medicines we give patients for their lacerations or their surgery incisions, Motrin, Naproxen, to use the brand names of those, not endorsing any one medicine here. Those can be upsetting to some people's stomach. And sometimes it's everything else going on. You're not able to eat well, your sleep's disturbed, you aren't able to take good care of yourself. Those are all things that can balance with it. But ultimately, if you're trying to take this medicine and it keeps upsetting your stomach, those other compensation strategies don't work. Time to change medicines because if it's upsetting yeah. your stomach and you're not taking it, it's not doing you any good. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So I'm very excited to talk about our next option. It is an infusion option, which is a little bit different, but there are pros and cons to it. I think a lot of people who have hard time swallowing pills are like, sign me up for the infusion. But then we know that the impacts of it are not as long lasting as uh, everyday pill. So talk to us about Zoroso. Yeah. So Zoroso brexanolone is the, the medical term for it. This is the first FDA-approved medicine specifically designed to treat postpartum depression, and it involves an infusion of medicine. It's You can't take it as a pill at this time. It's an infusion of a medicine. You have to go to the hospital to get that done. It is a commitment. It's 60 hours in the hospital getting that infusion. The good news is the medicine its actual medical term is allopregnenolone, which is the same as a hormone that is naturally made by the placenta during the pregnancy. So this is just giving you more of a hormone back that your body was already used to during pregnancy. This may come back to some of those susceptibilities and other things that are happening for patients where their body was so used to having a high level of hormone and then it plummets, maybe that tips them over the edge into these per perinatal mood disorders. And so now we give them a temporary replacement of that. It stabilizes things. Currently, for patients who get this, it's been reliably tested for up to 30 days of benefit. It may last longer than that. We just haven't done the studies to, to scientifically assess that yet. And some people look at that and say, oh my gosh, 60 hours in the hospital and you're only giving me a month's worth of relief and then it may come back. Is it really worth it? Other people may say, oh my gosh, 30 days of relief? I can get the dishes washed. I can get the baby changed. I can get all these things caught up in my life. I can get my Jenga blocks put back together. So then I can better handle that Jenga block in a different situation here. Uh, but going to the hospital for 60 days for, for 60 hours and getting this done, it's also expensive. And so then we have coverage and access issues. Um, it's fairly new. Uh, I have talked to nurses who have given it to patients before and the nurses say that many patients do get prompt relief. They come in feeling one way and they leave feeling differently. So it, it appears to be very effective for some patients. And so it's great to have this option out there. But I can also understand because it may not be widely available yet and because it is expensive and it is a logistical challenge getting yourself into the hospital. Can you bring the baby in with you? Who's going to take care of the baby? There can be big challenges with that. One thing that may make people feel better about it is that because it is a hormone that was already in the bloodstream at the time of delivery, probably fewer concerns about breastfeeding for that particular medicine, which is an understandable and appropriate concern for new mothers. Back to the SSRI medicines, we have a lot of experience using those, and especially Zoloft, where very few concerns about it making it more difficult to breastfeed or it harming the baby somehow. And for some moms, if they're so depressed or they're so anxious about things that that's getting in the way of the breastfeeding, 
it may be that that self-care and taking care of their mental health makes them even more successful at breastfeeding. So it's not yes or no, it's what works for a given patient. Um, so that's the very short version on Zilreso. But if other things aren't working or we need something that works much faster, good for people to know about bringing that up with their caregivers. And in terms of how often you can get this treatment, if it is lasting about 30 days, what are we seeing there? Are people getting it about once every, what, four to six weeks, I suppose? That's going to be a much more individualized situation. I haven't seen studies on that yet. I suspect the, the manufacturer is working on that. And certainly women's health professionals, new moms, doulas, midwives, everybody in this community we are desperate for things that are effective and sustainable for our patients. And so we would love to get more evidence about that. Based on it being rexenolone, this allopregnenolone hormone that the mother has already had in her body during the pregnancy, it may be that repeated doses could be helpful for the patient. But we will want to be investigating that to see, oh, there was something we hadn't considered about these extra doses of the hormone or after the first dose, it's much less effective, or maybe for those patients who it was effective for, we see better effectiveness because these are the ones that it's working for. And we try it with some patients and it doesn't work so well for them. And we find, yeah, it's not going to work any better the next time we try it as well. So we don't have good information about repeated uses or the timing on that. But that is something I know I have colleagues who are working with individual patients to see what they can make most effective in that patient's treatment. Yeah. And I assume that since it's so new, it there must be limitations on where you can actually access it. I'm familiar with a hospital in New Jersey that offers it just because um, I've worked with families that have had it before. Uh, what are we seeing in terms of access across the nation? Are people having to travel for it? I would say probably in the big city areas with academic medical institutions okay. or specialty centers, that would be the first place you would see it because you do need to be inpatient. You need to have nurses to take care of you for, for 60 hours. I would think that, and I do not have personal experience with using this medicine and we aren't providing it at, at my hospital yet. Um, the If you're gonna bring a patient in for a 60 hour infusion, I am thinking you're gonna have other services set up in parallel with that. So what else can we do to, to stabilize more of those Jenga blocks be it transportation, finances, other stresses in her life, long-term treatments that she should be on at the same time. So it's not just you show up, you get a medicine dripped in and you go home. There probably ought to be more of a systemic whole patient, whole family approach to it that way. Um, at the same time, you could also imagine this isn't the kind of treatment you need in 30 minutes or you're going to die. And so maybe you have a patient in a small town who's been having been trying to get better with medicines and therapy and it just hasn't worked. And she and her care team decide, you know what? I think we do need to have you take a trip, take a day or two trip to get to the big city and go to the hospital and get this taken care of. So then you can come back for 30 or 45 days and be better. And for some folks that trip to get this treatment, which is just an IV, it's not surgery. When you leave the hospital, it's not like you have a physical recuperation you would need like after a cesarean section, for example, yeah. That could that would be one thing that, while very inconvenient, might be a smaller access barrier um, being, but at the same time, fully acknowledging how do you transport the baby? What's going on in the rest of the household when mom is gone? 
because when mom's mm-hmm. not there, nothing's going the way that it should in the household. The And so those would be huge disruptions. And each family might say, uh, you know what, I'm okay. Let's We'll wait a few weeks before I try to take that big trip to do it. And other people may be at a point where they say, I'm so depressed right now. I can't even get out of bed. I'm not doing anything in the house anyway. Let's send me somewhere so I can try to get pregnant. I'm sorry, try to get treatment for it. Probably not wanting to try to get pregnant again right away. Um, Try to get my treatment. But then, you know, okay, here's the three or four days that I'm going to be gone. And in the meantime, friends and family, the support team can surge for those few days. And then hopefully the patient's coming back and feeling a lot better. And it's, you know, a more energy for a lot less work going forward. Yeah. Yeah. All righty. In very exciting news in terms of recording this podcast. Um, and by the time you guys are listening to it, this podcast is about three weeks old. So the information that we give you today certainly may have changed um, since we've recorded from the time that it is hitting your ears right now. But as of today, about 48 hours ago, 72 hours ago, um, the FDA just approved a brand new pill medication to treat postpartum depression. Can you please talk to us about that? What do we need to know about it? How are we accessing it? What do we know about the studies so far? Um, I'm very excited for this. Yeah, I'm I'm so excited that this is getting the news that it deserves because yeah. that 20% of patients, 20% of people having babies each year, that's wow. a lot of people having babies. Um, and so a lot of people at risk for postpartum depression. Yeah. The idea with this, the medicine's called Zoranolone, and it's similar to the Zolreso, the Brexanolone that I was talking about, but it's been modified a little bit so patients can take it by mouth. One pill for two weeks is the dosing. The good news is it seems to last for 30 to 45 days as well. So two weeks of a medicine and good for up to 45 days. Once again, that's what the studies have been done for. You know, Each six months, every year, we'll get more information as we follow those patients along further. Uh, didn't seem to have many serious side effects for the patients. Some sleepiness, they shouldn't take operate motor vehicles uh, shortly after they take the pills. Lots of details coming out about it but does seem to help a lot for, for patients. Uh, some patients, it's not going to help, but many it will. Much more convenient from coming to the hospital. Your local pharmacy can just stock it. You pick it up with a prescription from your doctor. You take it and you get some relief. Uh, the other thing that is different about it from the other moral medications is many patients are seeing relief within three days of starting it. And so that rapid effect could really help get them out of those dark or anxious places that they've they've uh, they've ended up in, and so they can feel better a lot faster. So very excited about it for that reason. Very new at this point, just approved over the past few days at the time of this recording. It's in the 90-day FDA final approval window at this point. So as best I can estimate, probably not coming on the market until early December that it will be available for consumers to get, but all of us will be keeping a close eye on that. Then once it comes out, we need to see how much it's going to cost. Will it be on insurance formularies so that that covers it? Who do we get it to? Are there prescribing criteria? What about interactions with other drugs the patient might be on? What about breastfeeding? And that's a big question mark that keeps coming up is because we do not have any breastfeeding studies on that. People are working on that, I'm sure, but we can't tell uh, patients safety for it, for against it. Uh, we may get studies that come out that tell us, you know what, 
is oral medicine, it doesn't even show up in the breast milk. So nothing to worry about. Um, or we may find, yes, it's in the breast milk and it's at a level that we want to pay attention to. So let's see what that means for your children. Um, and I bring those, those thoughts up not to be scary or to put people off from the medicine, but so individuals can ask their doctors who might be prescribing this medicine, what they should be paying attention to. And so they could make a balance about it. And that for many patients, that's one of those individualized questions where she may say, well, we don't know about the breastfeeding. I'm going to keep trying some other things first. I'm not so bad that I think I need this medicine, but keeping breastfeeding safely with my baby is the most important thing to me. Another mom, maybe those fingernails on the window sill and just desperate. And she's got to do something now. And she will decide, okay, I'm just going to pump and we won't use this breast milk. And then once I'm off the medicine for a little while, I can start breastfeeding my baby again. Or maybe this is the time she was going to stop breastfeeding. But how do we meet the patient where she is on her healthcare journey? Yeah, it's all about the risk and the benefits that you as an individual value and are willing to take. Um, that loading time is very, very exciting, especially considering uh, that the Zarenolone is the Zoroso without the hospital stay. You get to do it in your home without having to leave your family, without having to go be checked in, without having to travel should you not live, you know, right in um, a big city. That's very, very exciting. And just again, to be pharmaceutically as accurate as possible, the Zarenolone and the Zolreso are similar medicines, but the Zarenolone has been modified a little bit more than the Zolreso so that we can take it by mouth. They can survive getting digested and getting into our bloodstream. Um, so that, that's where I want to be cautious that people don't think it's just oral Zarenolone, just the allopregnenolone and nothing that I need to worry about. The, the, the Zarenolone, it's a little bit different. And that's where we need to see, are there going to be any other side effects that we haven't seen with the Zolreso since we have more experience with that? Yeah. So ask your doctors about that, you guys. Um, It is so new, so it may not have made it quite to your doctor. So you may be introducing this idea, this medication to them, um, but definitely open up the conversation because this is very, very, very exciting. I'm very excited to get this um, into people's hands and homes and to help them feel better. Okay. So I feel like we've done a very good job of laying out our medicinal options and, and the prescriptions that people can talk to their provider about and find kind of what works for them. But for the people who are a little bit more hesitant or skeptical or maybe aren't quite ready to go to pharmaceutical medicinal options, is there a middle ground that we have that people might consider more, quote unquote, natural or organic, but also still medicinal? Plant-based, I suppose, is what I'm thinking. Right. And so the in terms of what we have good scientifically researched evidence here, it's more limited. And, and a few reasons for that is one for many of these natural treatments, there's not a an industrial or pharmaceutical company interest to generate the very intense research that needs to be done to get the FDA approval. And that's true, unfortunately, for so much of our healthcare system. Um, so just because it's not FDA approved doesn't mean it's bad. Another challenge that the doctors worry about is that because it's natural and it's coming from so many different sources, Sometimes we don't know the concentration that's in there, and sometimes we don't know what else might be mixed in there as well, too. Uh, when you get the, the pill from the pharmacy, you know what you're getting. It's a very standardized uh, production process. With many of the naturals, 
the naturals are so complex in everything they have. We talk about getting uh, vitamin C from orange juice, but it's not like a big orange ball of vitamin C. You've got fiber in there. You've got other sweet, you've got sugars in there. You've got other chemicals in there. Um, and so that's where the naturals healthier for us in some ways, because it's that better mix of what our bodies are used to, but more unpredictable for us as well. Mm -hmm. uh, so that's where one, one caution comes from. I'll give you an example of one that I'm familiar with. St. John's wort is well known as an, an antidepressant for mild depression symptoms, and it probably does work. And I've looked at this at the NIH's National Complementary and Integrative Medicine website. We've got the link in the re resources page. So you can go look up what you're thinking about and see if there's any science behind it to let you know, oh yes, you can rely on this or we haven't found anything to support it or here are the side effects you need to worry about. So St. John's work probably does help for mild depression symptoms, but it, the side effects that we have to worry about is the way that it's metabolized in the liver, which is just part of the normal processing of it it can interfere with how the hormones and birth control pills are metabolized. So actually the birth control pill hormones end up being lower in the bloodstream when a woman's taking birth control pills and St. John's wort. And if her birth control levels are lower, she's more likely to get pregnant. And so that's where you would want that thorough discussion to see, are there any interactions or side effects that you need to worry about? And there may be, uh, natural options out there that don't have those side effects. But again, in terms of making recommendations to my patients, I always want to put safety first. Let's make sure we're not going to make you worse off. How is it safe for you? How is it safe for your baby? And then we can start talking about other uh, options and effectiveness uh, treatments from there. So that would be an example. And there's that website for the National Complementary and Integrative Medicine uh, Summaries. Another natural plant treatment that's out there that's gotten a lot of a lot of popularity and is now legal in 37 states would be marijuana. And so for many people, they find that as a mood stabilizer for them and seems to be very effective. Uh, and there are probably there are studies out there that show it probably does have some mood stabilizing effects. Two problems that we have is one, because it's been so Ill illegal in so many places for so long, we don't have a lot of good research on it because it can be hard to find patients. A lot of the research is done just on people self-reporting. So there's, do they remember correctly from the surveys? What other medicines or drugs might have they been using at the same time? Were they tobacco smokers at the same time? Are they being, do we have a complete health history on them? And so those kinds of factors can mix into it to make it hard to know what to do with that evidence. Yeah. The other thing is that with the improved cultivation of marijuana over the past decades, as it's become more and more widely legal for people to use, the potency has increased. It's on estimate on average, it's doubled over this time. Wow. And so, so now we're talking about doses of marijuana that are twice as strong as they were 10 or 20 years ago. And that's where a lot of our long-term evidence about its effect on, on moms and babies and children growing up in those households, where that's coming from. So now maybe the, the mothers and their, their, their fetuses or their newborns through breast milk are being exposed to twice as high a dose. How is it being consumed? Is it being vaped? Is it being smoked? Is it being dabbed? Is it a, an oral form? Uh, is it a suppository? All those affect how high the dose gets in the body and how long the dose lasts in the body as well too. Uh, and so those are all variables that make it hard for us to 
provide reliable information to patients about it. Uh, when I talk to patients about this and say, doc, this is the only thing that works for me. What I'm hearing her say is, doc, I need a, I have a mental health situation that I feel like I need to do something about. And so I want to work with her on finding things, on finding things that work for her that maybe I have more information about, or I can recommend more reliably for her. Um, the, I would, I would not tell her you're a bad person for smoking pot. That is not the way we should be taking care of our patients. I, I look at patients who are using uh, different medicines in ways that we would worry about, be it tobacco or pot or alcohol or stronger recreational drugs. Those are people who have some kind of treatment that they need right now. They're trying to take care of other problems in their lives. And how can I help them find the care that they need that's going to be effective for them, that they can use, and that will be safe for them. That's really the epitome of compassionate care right there is meeting your patients where they're at and helping them play detective about what is happening in their life and helping them get better tools in place. Um, you know, I love how you pointed out that someone who's drinking is not just, um, you know, isn't just someone who is irresponsible or lazy, they are, they're trying to help themselves and maybe one of the only ways that they know how. And so us as healthcare professionals, I'm not a healthcare professional, but healthcare professionals and people like doulas who help people alongside healthcare professionals, we can meet them where they're at and be compassionate to what's going on in their life so that we can help get them better. I love that so much. Um, all right. I do have one last question of, of something that I didn't know about before your A1 um, speech. Now, I had heard about it, but not in terms of postpartum depression, and that is ketamine. Tell us about that. Right. And so ketamine originally developed as a, a powerful anti anti anesthetic medicine. Um, and for in many situations, it is a great option to have under a controlled setting. It's also gotten a bad reputation because it's been co-opted for use as a street drug. And so it can be dangerous in those kinds of situations. And so it can have a bad reputation for that uh, reason. We don't have the same kind of research on it for postpartum depression. This is more ex extrapolated from the depression literature, but it does seem like some of these treatments can break very difficult to treat depression. And it's probably because we're finding different nerve pathways or, or different chemical balances in the brain that need to be reset in a different way that hasn't responded to the more typical treatment patterns. The challenges are that it, it's hard to get good studies for this because you need a lot of people with postpartum depression to be willing to come in and do this. It needs to be given in a hospital usually by an anesthesia trained person. Um, so a higher level of training, all those things make the research harder to accumulate uh, because it's a new treatment. I understandably, a lot of moms who are breastfeeding, they don't wanna be exposed to that right now until we know more about it. Uh, but for some people, it turns out that it's been life-saving. Uh, it's one of those things that I, I, I so appreciate you bringing this up because there are medicines like ketamine or other treatments that are out there that are not widely known, but maybe the option that pulls a patient who is struggling back from the edge. And so this is where just because the first treatment didn't work well for you doesn't mean there aren't other options. Uh, but I also think about saying that for those of us listening to the podcast who may not be struggling with a perinatal mood disorder right now, we're in a position to plan. 
and organize and get things done. And my patients who don't show up for their postpartum visits, I worry about them because if they can't even, if they don't have the energy or the focus to get to, to be at home and get organized to come to the clinic for their appointment, what else are they missing out on? And so now asking them, well, you need to call this hospital or talk to these people or apply to be in that study. Oh my gosh. I can barely do that. And I'm the professional to get through all the paperwork and get to the visits and make the phone calls and sit on hold. And for exhausted people who are just trying to, to take care of a child, so challenging for them. And so that's where the system is not helping us very much here. And I always think about how do I get my patient to where she needs to be? And is that letting her talk for an extra five minutes? Is that getting her over to the therapy appointment? Is that writing her the prescription for the medicine? It's all that. It's going to, how I treat my patient is going to look different for each patient, but depending on where she is. Yeah, that's awesome. That individual touch. I hope that in the future we can study things like ketamine and maybe we will see cannabis be knocked down the schedule a couple rungs so that we can actually start to study it. And it won't be a, is it schedule one right now? It's at the very top, you know. It, it, does the schedule it is for the federal government indicates that it has no medicinal uses that the federal government recognizes. It'd be a very concise way to say that. I'm sure there are, are probably experts on the phone yelling at their screens right now because that's <laughs> not exactly correct. But it, it, because that's how it's scheduled in, with, through the FDA, it, it's not available for research. It's not available for federal funding, except in very specific circumstances. Um, I, I don't know if I personally would want to see it legalized because of some of the, the problems that I have seen with it, but I would like it for us to know exactly what it's supposed to do. Just like there are narcotic medicines that are abused and there are narcotic medicines I'm so thankful I have during surgery. Ketamine, it's a street drug that can be so harmful to people when it's used wrong and it can be life-saving for people used in the right circumstances I suspect there are things that we're going to be able to find from cannabis and THC that will have excellent medical benefits for many people. I just want them to know that they're getting the medical benefits and they're getting them safely and, and we're preventing avoidable side effects. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I do have one last little comment and then we'll wrap up, but we've done a lot of talking about moms having postpartum depression. And I think that it would be remiss of us to let the listeners go without mentioning that this can in fact happen to male partners too. Dads do struggle with postpartum depression and anxiety, maybe not in as great of number. And I don't think that it's nearly as recognized. Um, but to think that because you are a dad, you're off the hook would be incorrect. You know, the what's going on with the fathers has not gotten nearly enough research to figure out what's going on. And in many of the approaches that we need to use probably need to be different in figuring it out for fathers, just because male mental health can look so much different than female mental health. Um, I heard, a, a, just in the last couple of weeks, I heard a great example talking about many women thrive on face-to-face -face conversations. Many men thrive on shoulder-to-shoulder -shoulder conversations, where it's the two guys working on the car or playing sports or doing something like that. That walk therapy that you were talking about, bringing it back to that, and maybe that's more a more comfortable setting for the guys to have their conversations. I mentioned that for, for the male partners, often there's nothing for them to fix. Such a 
I, I hate having to tell a husband that because as a husband and a guy, what do you mean there's nothing to be fixed? There's got to be something for me to fix. That is how I live. That is my reason for being is to fix things. Um, I have grown past that over my professional career being a women's health professional, but it is my secret weapon with many of my heterosexual couples where I can, I get two minutes with the guy and I can put it translated into Y chromosome and it seems to go okay. Um, and, or at least get him to dial back and realize that, you know, doing more pushups is not going to necessarily make her feel better. Um, but he needs to do something. So those are the kinds of things where often checking with the husbands and how they're doing is so important. Yet so much of the healthcare system that I see, the postpartum visits, the husbands often aren't there. The pediatrics visits, the husbands aren't there. They're just off doing their thing. And you know, maybe we have like the support groups. And we get the moms and the babies and the and the male partners all together, all the partners together, whichever group they're most comfortable with, um, because it, certainly in my practice, a, a huge gender fluidity range that we're dealing with now and it's so much more dynamic and nuanced in the conversations. But we put folks in a setting that they can understand. And, you know, maybe we give the husbands a, a newborn obstacle course Olympics. And you got to run from station to station for a time and scores. And this is how you prepare a bottle of milk. And this is how you diaper a baby. And this is how you wipe a bottom. And this is how you tape out, take out the poop bag um, and make it fun and lighthearted. But we're still sneaking some skills in there and a little confidence and some good pictures for the Christmas album and all those other things at the same time. You got to gamify <laughs> for the guys. I love it. I love it so much. <laughs> That is awesome. This has been such a fascinating conversation and you have done it again. You have taken a conversation that I think feels very heavy and can sometimes feel very overwhelming and maybe even a little embarrassing of like, oh, am I going to struggle with this? And you have made it light and you have made it informative and you've made it not scary. And I feel really empowered and I hope our listeners do as well. Thanks so much for being here with me today. Thank you so much for letting me be here as well, too. I so appreciate to get this information out to a wider audience. Um, it, you know, it has to be the one on one or the one on two with my my patients or the couples and the parents afterwards. But it, the whole community can help in these situations, too. And just that little nudge or having the phone number available or taking the kids to the park and giving somebody that space just to catch their breath such a good part of helping our families start their journeys together so they can be so healthy from the outset. I agree. Thank you so much. This this has really been one of my favorite podcasts to date that I've ever recorded. I really appreciate your time. I think that you did a beautiful job of laying out how individualized um, healthcare in general, but specifically that postpartum care needs to be in order to support families with what their goals are in a way that they're going to receive it and they're going to be able to easily follow through to get those results. So listeners, thank you so much for tuning in today. As always, it has been so fantastic to hang out with you. I will see you again next week. If you're listening on the podcast, head over to YouTube to see our beautiful faces. And if you're watching us on YouTube, head over to the podcast. Until next time, bye y'all. Thank you so much for tuning in today. I truly do value this community and I love hanging out with you. If you found today's episode helpful, share it with a friend. Share it with someone who might also find this information helpful. 
I'd love to hear what you have to say and read your sweet words on iTunes. You can leave us a review and this helps get this information into the hands of parents who might also benefit from hearing it. If you're interested in joining The Birth Lounge, you can go to thebirthlounge.com. Our blog is linked there. You can find all sorts of free information as well as how to get your access to The Birth Lounge. You can always hang out with me on Instagram as well, at Tranquility by Hehe. Until then, stay educated, stay supported, stay confident.